0: Clear of the closing
1: doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, fantasy,
0: horror, sci fi, and the just plain weird come together in The Kaleidocast. Join Professor Brad Overstreet. Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbound and Assistant Crypto Provost Don Fairweather
2: Jenkins of the Metatechnic Institute and Inquisitor James Earl King II
1: as they explore the stories drifting in and out of your reality.
0: Hey, nerd. You know that thing you wanted me to find in that place that was impossible to get to? I got it. Get out. That's amazing. How did you even know where to look? Because I walk the path of least resistance, my friend. Morally Flexible Parkway. A lot of overhead on this caper, so it'll cost you. After all this time, I could finally make tenure. No more... Wait a second. No, no. Still don't care. Right. Sorry. So, how much is. Hey! Hey! How'd you guys get into my apartment? Ow! Adore me! What are you doing?
2: It's no use, Mr. Second. They are doctoral candidates, thus, slaves to my every command. Must defend, he says. Why, what do we have here? Is that a Marcus song in the original packaging? Vintage pre-1965. Am I right? Before they started enforcing the child safety laws. Such workmanship! I'll take it!
0: Oh, oh well if you know if you know your songs, then you know this story, knowing you, knowing me. It's a two-parter. No good without the second half. Call off your goons and we can talk about this like civilized readers. Hmm. Tempting. What next? Nah. God, no! Why'd you open it in here? We're to die!
2: Don't worry. I'll be long gone by the time the story finishes you off. I don't need it. Just don't want Spellingbound to have it. Adios, idiots. No, Thought, no,
1: no! My tenure! <laughs> Sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you feel you have reached this recording in error, please check the number and try your call again.
2: Knowing You, Knowing Me by Marcus Song They had the same argument as ever at the Ugly Duck Tavern when Red chose Knowing You, Knowing Me on the jukebox. They were in the middle of killing off a row of whiskey shots. Didn't we just play this song? June asked him. No. No, you've played this song every time we've come here. Red made a big show of turning his head both ways. We've never been here before. Right, yeah, right, said June. But you always play this song at every bar on every jukebox. If it makes you happy, I will agree. Yes, I play this song on every jukebox I see. Told you. I was humoring you. I haven't even thought of this song in years. You freaking out when I asked you about the photo just reminded me. Okay, sure. But June was more sure than ever that he always played knowing you, knowing me on the jukebox. That he tried to pass the blame her way bothered her, almost as much as seeing her younger self in that old snapshot on her phone. Only one photo of an entire pile she'd asked Red to scan into her computer before they'd taken off on this road trip to Reno. He'd been in the process of asking her about every scanned image before she'd refused to answer when he showed the photo in question. The ugly duck had that cavernous feel of a movie theater, only squished into boxcar proportions that shrank you down to its scale when you entered. The eye of a projection TV opened on the back wall, showing a muted football game. They swaggered into the place while the storm gathered its courage behind the mountains, the room full of promise like every time she entered a new bar. But then a dizzying wave of deja vu hit her as if this was an opening scene of a movie she'd viewed hundreds of times— the same few men and women huddled at the bar, the same group of five reality television-grade denim and leather barbarians gathered around the pool table, clacking balls around. They got some odd looks from the bikers as June squinted their way, trying to see if Brando was among them. So where is he? You sure this guy is meeting us here? He asked. This is where he said he'd be, the Ugly Duck. Still don't trust him. His name is Brando. Whatever. Whatever. Why would he just give you a gift? He's supposed to be buying that movie crap. So what? Collectors like sharing things. I like sharing things. Why meet us here instead of tomorrow in Reno like he was supposed to? He happened to be nearby. Coincidence. More like stalking. They'd washed up here in this truck stop oasis on their way to visit June's parents in Reno to pick up some old movie posters and props she'd boxed up in the attic ten years ago when she'd escaped Nevada at eighteen and gone to L.A. Some collectors she knew, including Brando, were offering good money for them. They would have pushed on, but the nasty thunderheads piled up over the interstate in front of them promised enough violence to make them consider staying the night. And then Brando had texted saying he'd been driving around the desert, and if they were near exit 43, he could meet them a day early. And that decided that. They checked into the off-brand motel across from the Ugly Duck and stocked up on booze. Ground control to June. Tell me something. He held up her smartphone, framing it with his fingers. It still showed the scan of the photo in question. What? If this photo, he said, making it wiggle up and down on the screen with his finger is what inspired you to become a fan of that shitty movie. Why is it you freaked out when I showed it to you? The Rewinder may be a piece of shit, but it's not a bad movie. And I didn't freak out, I just forgot about it until I saw it. Forgot about what, the movie? The image was of June, an embryonic girl with red hair, about 12 maybe, squinting past the camera, holding a tiny plastic man with horns and chrome pink highlights close to the lens. The toy was missing its right arm a veteran returning from some doll war. Looming over her shoulder was a conglomeration of redstone formations, somehow melted in texture, a black cave mouth gaping in its center. She still didn't want to tell Red what had surprised her when he asked about it four whiskey shots ago. But right behind her in the photo, she'd seen a smeared human shadow, its shape confusing and it suggested both stillness and movement. She squinted closer, thinking at first it must have been a digital artifact from the scan— She couldn't make sense of the person-shaped blur, and then the smudge was gone. Just disappeared, and in its place a fear grew that someone was peeping at them through the flickering window of the projected football game on the wall. Forgot that you're just humoring me, June said. Is this still about Abba? Jesus! No, I mean you don't really care about any of this. Any of the things I care about. Red gave half a shrug that said her words had just bounced right off his skull. Not much I can say if that's what you get out of this. He put her phone down on the bar and lifted the last shot of whiskey to his lips. He piled the shot glass on top of the empties they'd already built into a pyramid, a good time she'd paid for with her own cash. Just what had she seen in him this whole year they'd been dating anyway? Aside from the fact that he was the most charming of the regular customers who'd lobbed pickup lines her way when she tended bar. Like that was a high bar to jump but at least Red had seemed to put more thought than most into both what she said and how he responded. He used to pick songs on the jukebox she liked instead of just trying to get a rise out of her, and claimed to share her love of airbrushed van art, tattoos, old toys, comic books, and vinyl monster figures, and, of course, old horror movies. The first night she took him home, she let him dig through her shelves of VHS tapes. It had felt like foreplay, the way he pulled out and examined the tapes. But she came to realize that Red was only a fan of these things as much as they were useful to getting into her pants, and then her apartment. All they had in common was a parallel desert childhood separated by the state line between Nevada and California, hers in Reno, and his in Apple Valley, both running on lawns dreamed into existence where there should have been no grass, no trees, only sand and sagebrush, mirage towns. The collection of tapes and memorabilia in her trunk wrapped tight in milk crates and plastic tarps was the only tangible thing they'd built together. Their collection. Her collection. June peeled a fifty from a roll of identical bills, gave it to Red. Go pretend you have money and order us some more fun. I'll pay you back. You know that, honey. Red got up and waved the bill at the bartender, a woman with stringy hair who looked resentful until she saw the fifty. A shadow reached over the table from behind her. Be unkind. Rewind, said a voice. He said it like the guy from Night of the Living Dead when he was trying to scare his sister at the beginning of the movie. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Very funny. Brando? she asked, though she knew it was him. How she knew was a mystery since she'd never heard his voice and had only seen his avatar on Negative Sun horror forums a portrait of Dark Phoenix from the X-Men. She turned around. The man who stood behind her stool was tall, stretched out in an odd way as if he were a shorter man projected out on the pavement like a late afternoon shadow. It was hard to make out details since he was a backlit silhouette against the window, but in a flash her mind painted in a hawkish face, black trench coat, and a cowboy hat. Where'd he come from? She'd been watching the front entrance this whole time. As the light brightened, she could see that Brando's face matched her mental image perfectly. Very handsome, in that annoying, ugly way she kind of liked. June, right? You were in here this whole time? Yes and no. That's vague. Watching us? Red came back, clasping more whiskey shots in his palms. Stalker. Told you so. You probably already know I'm Red. June protested Red's comment, but Brando was a good sport about it. After they passed around the formal introductions, upended their drinks, and placed the glasses on their growing table pyramid, Red warmed to Brando's company, especially after Brando offered to buy the next round. Brando looked at June and Red with a sly look on his face. Want to know what I was really doing before I texted you? I was driving around looking for Gilliam Castle. June punched Brando on the shoulder. Get out, she said. Those are right around here, aren't they? Yeah. You didn't know that? And you call yourself a fan, said Brando. What, said Red, the fuck are you two talking about? June and Brando yelled in unison, Be unkind, unkind rewind. rewind! Oh, that fucking movie. You mean that fucking brilliant piece of trash, said June. She and Brando tag-teamed Red with a plot recap of Studio Mundo's The Rewinders. June was surprised at how natural it felt. Brando braiding his voice with her own. The movie was a sort of mid-80s meta-commentary on the slasher genre. Self-referential humor, pulsing synthesizer soundtrack. The killer with the hedge clippers was a kind of living, human-shaped extrusion of interdimensional aliens. The Rewinders. These KY jelly-covered latex rejects from a David Cronenberg movie were shown mostly in Silhouette, getting the most out of their special effects budget. But the Rewinders had the limited ability to reverse time, so when the lead actress convinced her friends to stick together and get weapons, they managed to kill the hedge-clipper alien zombie. But before it died, the Rewinders rolled back time to an earlier scene and changed it. Changed history. After the rewind, the killer takes the weapons out of the tool shed before the kids could think to use them, throws them in a deep canyon. June tried to explain how the gimmick had struck her as both creepy and profound when she dug it out of her parents' VHS collection, hidden in a box along with their home movies, like a premonition of doom somehow. But the rewinding gimmick's not what the movie's most famous for in fan circles, Brando said. You're talking about the money shot, June said. The what? asked Red. June explained that Studio Mondo wasn't exactly a big-league operation. Most of their actors and crew worked double on Mondo's porno movies, all shot on video. With no scripts, only a list of titles brainstormed in meetings, and posters drawn by the infamous hot Jim Rod, who'd made his name doing album cover art for Pacific Northwest thrash bands, who would ink whatever came to his mind as he looked at the list of possible titles. With the rewinders, Jim Rod himself got the director's chair on the strength of his poster, An enormous, fanged cave gaping wide and swallowing within it a shrinking series of smaller caves, some of which showed tiny human figures trying to flee, but being killed in various Dante's Inferno ways. They filmed half of it in Gilliam Castle, guerrilla-style. Supposedly, half the crew ended up institutionalized. Everyone said it was the usual, drugs or whatnot. But legend has it they saw something in Gilliam Castle that drove them mad, said Brando. Keep in mind, it's just called a castle. It's actually a series of caves, claimed by this guy Thad Gilliam back in the frontier days. He spent years carving shapes into the stone. Mostly stylized doors and arches, which is why it made such a great filming location. June nodded. Unsafe, though. It's closed to tourists now, isn't it? The photo, said Red. What? You visited those caves, right, June? That picture on your phone. Brando held it his hand and asked to see it. It was still on the screen, like it had been waiting for this moment. He kept talking while looking at June's younger face, explaining the money shot. Most of the rewinders is about as laughable as you'd expect. Cheap effects, stiff actors, not even as professional as Phantasm. Though some argue it's just as gonzo and hot Jim Rod definitely got his aesthetic across. And when they filmed the final battle, the entire crew dropped a ton of acid and improvised the whole thing, dialogue and all, everyone running wild in the caves. Some of the actors and crew got lost for a whole day and night. And the footage they came out with? You can hear real terror in their voices. We're talking Oscar-worthy performances. Way better than anything else they did in the movie. And there's one shot the one where we get a glimpse of the doorway to the Rewinders' dimension. You can see a darkened cave, and for a second, the darkness itself moves. A wall of jello, like a membrane with something huge pushing against it. I always thought it was a face, said June. Maybe. But anyway, that one shot doesn't fit the rest of the movie. Like... The practical effects are too sophisticated, and the way the shape grabs that actress's head in that split second, it just seems too real. She ended up killing herself a year after filming, Brando said. Jesus, said Red. There came a sound of a giant stomping on the hard stone of the earth in the distance. It shook the ugly duck, making the lights shudder. Storm's getting serious, said June. That micro you're holding in the photo, said Brando, pointing at her phone. That's the one you told me about, Red. Yeah, the one I lost in Gilliam Castle. Red stared hard at Brando. Wait, she told you about this before? When? Online, a while ago, she said. Her cheeks flushed, and then she got irritated that she felt guilty. You always seem bored when I tell you this stuff. I came along on this trip, didn't I? We're having a good time, right? Brando leaned forward between them. The moment felt rehearsed somehow, like he knew they'd start fighting. Guys, I have a couple of things to show you that'll make everything better. Gifts, actually. And they have something directly to do with this photo and the movie. Such a coincidence. Let's meet in your room. Down the hatch now. He held up the last three shots. Red and June hesitated, then joined Brando in finishing them off and slammed the glasses down. Before they left, he arranged the last of the empty shot glasses on their wobbling glass structure. It made June uneasy, and she realized that it was because it reminded her of a pile of heads left over from some Aztec sacrificial rite in an old adventure serial. Red paced next to his reflection in the mirror after they got back to their room. Swollen clouds glowered over the truck stop, spilling rain from their bellies. June closed her eyes, leaned back, and let herself drift with her gym-beam-quickened pulse. She stripped to her underwear after getting soaked in the rain, which was now strafing the ground in waves. Something about the storms always saddened June, the way the folded clouds seemed so delicate, yet angry. Kind of like Red, who'd been sulking since coming back to their room. Red's voice murmured in her ear, muffled as if speaking into a pillow. His voice had an edge of alarm to it, and seemed to drift right out of the wall next to her ear. You say something? She said, only to see that he stood near the door, lifting the curtain with one hand. Something stroked the wall by her head, then thumped emphatically. Red turned and slowly grinned as the thumps behind the wall settled into a regular rhythm. The murmur came again. Voice imploring or begging. The same sounds had been going on ever since they checked in. At least someone's having fun, June said. Maybe we could join in. Red pointed at the door that connected their room to the next one. The bolt on their side unlocked. Practically an invitation. Ha! They're probably hoping for that, June said. They've been at it for hours. I'm tired just listening. We used to do that. Go all day. Rhett patted his shirt pocket, then each thigh. We're out of cigs? Go buy some more, June said. Look at the sky. Storm's hitting harder. You didn't tell me you talked online with Brando so much. I have a lot of online friends. Yeah, but we don't meet a lot of those people by surprise at a lot of truck stops. I'm sorry, but this jealousy trip is not a turn-on. Jealousy? No. This whole thing just feels wrong somehow. Don't you see that? What I see is that you can't just go with the flow. Were you born with that stick-up-your-ass? Nice. Red got up, shrugged into his long black coat, which, now that June thought about it, looked a lot like Brando's. Go into the store, he said. You crazy? Look at the sky. Six. You see any? Fine. Be an idiot. She watched him run down the stairs. A tinkling sound like a window cracking started up. Then the world shattered into a swarm of roaring white TV static. It danced, hissing on the pavement. Hail. The few people milling around in the parking lot broke into a run. Red turned around, his black coat flapping behind him as he ran back up the stairs. She opened the door. "'Good God, get inside before you're killed!' she urged. He ducked inside, slamming the door after him. The man in the doorway doubled in height, stretching like some optical illusion. It wasn't red. It was Brando. He held a large box in his hands with a shopping bag full of booze piled on top of it. June looked down, saw that she was only wearing her Hello Kitty panties and sweaty tank top. His eyes flickered over her body before he coughed and turned away reaching into the shopping bag he carried. How could she have mistaken him for Red when he was running up the stairs? He's twice as tall and wears a cowboy hat, for Christ's sake. She leapt backwards, finding her shorts and stepping into them. You took your time? Red went for smokes. Didn't see him. Brando looked around, decided to put the box on top of the desk next to the TV. Sit down, he said, gesturing at the bed. She leaned against the wall instead, next to the door that connected the room to their noisy neighbor's room. She thought about sliding the bolt shut. "'You think I'm a flirt, don't you?' asked June. "'I'd be presumptuous if I agreed with you, even if it were true. "'But it's not. I can hear you saying so already,' said Brando. Red's weirded out by all of these coincidences. All of us being right here, right now— Near Gilliam Castle. But you know it all means something, right? I know. I'm being presumptuous. Have you been stalking me online? Are you like one of those anonymous hackers? Brando rummaged through the large box he'd carried inside. Here. I made this for you. It probably doesn't help prove I'm not a hacker, stalker, whatever. But this is the first half of what I was going to give you. A small plastic-wrapped box bound in rubber bands appeared in Brando's hand with the grace of a quick-shooter's pistol in a spaghetti western. It shined all beetle-like in his palm and seemed to breathe. She took it from him, picked at it tentatively at first, wincing at the rubber bands snapping under her fingers. But her curiosity grew, and she pulled them off with more enthusiasm until they sprang all over the room. On a bed of cobweb-looking cotton lay a multicolored doll with horned chrome head and limbs. It curled into itself among the bright plastic wreckage, its right arm missing. "'Look familiar,' said Brando. The room took a breath around her, the walls inhaling and exhaling as she sat down, dizzied by seeing this childhood object come to life. "'No fucking way! acro here. Something heavy hit the front door, shaking it. June startled, but Brando shrugged and reached for the doorknob. She heard another sound that added uneasy fear to her elation at seeing this scuffed-up Japanese toy. Yes, there it was. A sound like a feathery slide of hands. Multiple hands brushing the other side of the wall near the side door that connected their room to the next one. With its bolt unlocked. She was about to slide it into place when Red tumbled past Brando into the room. He shook, sprinkling hail from his shoulders and hair onto the carpet. His face was pale under a layer of moisture, mouth open as he looked at June. You're here, Red shot at her, almost an accusation. Why, yes, we are. And that's weird because... I saw... I thought I saw you in the window next door. No. But look at this. June held up the toy in her hand. Red squinted at it. That looks familiar. It's a Micronaut, said June. Brando spoke up. Made by Mago in the 70s. You can switch out their heads, arms, whatever. Fully articulated, not like the Star Wars action figures. This one is the first acro year. Tougher than the inferior acro year, Two. Diecast body. Some scuffing. What are you going to do? You can see they mix the pink torso with the green head and rotary wing pack. Missing an arm, but the wheels on his feet still roll. The hands still hold the standard five millimeter pegs. I salvaged the original acroblade and spybird. Not just any acro year. It's just like the one I lost in Gilliam Castle when I was a kid. Missing its right arm and everything. I always felt terrible about that. It was my dad's originally. I still can't believe you found this. Built almost exactly like you described it, said Brando. When did she tell you about this? Red asked. I don't know. On the forums a while ago. She never told you this story? Seemed pretty important to her. I asked her about it at the Ugly Duck before you showed up. It's good to know she has at least one person she can talk to. She remembered the smudge of shadow standing behind her in the scan. No, it wasn't that I didn't want to tell you. It just wasn't the right time yet. When is the right time? Asked Red. Not now. We have a guest. Go mix some drinks. What would she have said? That she used to have nightmares about that lost toy? Down there in the hollowed-out stone entrails of Gilliam Castle? She'd pictured Year lying there in the dark, hearing the scraping footsteps of tourists, perhaps seeing a light in the dark, a voice saying, Hello? Are you there? In her dreams, he'd come to life and find his way among the horrid carved arches and doors Thad Gilliam had added to those natural formations frozen in acts of obscene liquid transformations. She'd watched the Micronaut pull himself along with that one arm, deeper and deeper, until his body started to change, to melt and stretch into a boneless, clear gelatin. Growing to giant size, he'd stand as tall as a cedar if he could only reach the surface. His chrome and plastic body turned jelly, still transparent as mucus, but flecked with blackened particles absorbed through eons worth of crawling through primordial obsidian and sandstone, the drippings of sewage plants and storm drains, the pipes under office buildings and houses. He'd squeeze with the patience of an earthworm, could flow in multiple streams up the kitchen and bathroom sinks, the basement drain, the toilets, through the keyhole of her Reno bedroom, and rejoin into the mass that filled her bedroom door. At that moment, she'd pull out of sleep. No, she'd never tell anyone about those dreams.
0: Marcus Song spent his formative years in the Pacific Northwest, splitting his time between Seattle and Boise. He's since moved to Shanghai, Portland, San Francisco, Wisconsin, and Washington, D.C., before settling in Brooklyn where he lives with his wife, son, two cats, and a grumpy dragon. He is currently working on a fantasy novel and a collection of weird tales.
1: Jen Carter is an actress hailing from the bases and burbs of Virginia, California, and Florida. She received her B.A. in theater from Florida State University and has been performing in one form or another since the age of four. Some of her favorite roles from regional and New York City theater include Stella in A Streetcar Named Desire, Patsy Cline in Always Patsy Cline, Jen in Sunday on the Rocks, Ula in The Producers, Kate Keller in The Miracle Worker, Maid Marian in Robin Hood, Ophelia in Hamlet, and Hermia, Peter Quince, and Cobweb in A Midsummer Night's Dream, just to name a handful. Jen currently lives in New York City with her teddy bear and her potted plant, Felix. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. The sound engineer for this episode is Matt Stewart, with assistance from Atticus Ryan Garden, Alicia Barrett, and Matt Mozzarella. Your hosts are Tanya Ireland-McLean as Dawn Fairweather Jenkins, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Special thanks go out to Marcy Arlen. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. Go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and for links to all our contributors.